0: Even though becoming a doctor results in a higher income potential, it also leaves us with a considerable amount of debt after all of those extra years of schooling. So I thought it was really important to focus an episode on student loan repayment. Now, student debt is actually pretty confusing, and there are a couple nuances to it. So I called in an expert for this one and sat down with Paul Girard of PG Presents. He is a student loan expert and specializes in helping medical school and professional school graduates to come up with a strategy to repay their student loans. So, today's episode has a lot of really great information in there. I would maybe even recommend getting out a pen and paper and writing some of this stuff down um, so that you can have it as a reference later. Really important stuff, and I know you guys will find this one helpful. Welcome to the White Coat Academy podcast, your source for all things personal and professional development as a new healthcare provider. Join me, Dr. Emily Funk Reynolds, as we navigate the challenges young doctors face in treating patients today and work to better ourselves beyond our clinical care. Hi, everyone. I am joined today on the podcast by Paul Gerard. Paul, welcome.
1: Thank you very much. Glad to be with you guys.
0: So you are kind of the expert in what is notoriously not the favorite thing of young doctors, (laughs) and that is student debt. So um, it's something that is pretty prevalent these days as we all know, um, but I think one of the areas that we're kind of lacking is education in how to manage it once you know, we're out of school and we actually have to start tackling that debt. Um, so what are some of the first kind of things that you would recommend to a young doctor when trying to assess their debt
1: situation? Sure, good question. We appreciate everybody joining us today. One of the things I try to do and I always say right up front, uh, Emily, that I try to keep this as simple as possible without insulting anybody's intelligence. So right out of the gate, none of what we're going to talk about with the repayment strategies and some of the repayment plans, time-driven, some of the uh, income-driven repayment plans, public service, all that stuff, none of that makes sense unless you know what you've borrowed, what kind of loans you have in your student loan portfolio, who they are serviced by in other words who you're going to be working with in terms of repayment and when they come due and frankly that's uh, quite easy these days some of you may have some private loans from college you may have some campus-based loans that came straight from your school but for the majority of you your student loan portfolio consists of federal loans and here's where try and keep it Emily as simple as possible The federal government took over all the lending about 10 years ago. And so, guys, when you see the word direct unsubsidized and direct plus, that's also called grad plus, those loans are directly from the government. You signed a master promissory note with the feds and you actually owe the government. Those are direct loans, but those are contracted out for servicing. To third-party organizations, these are some names you guys should know: Navient, Nelnet, Great Lakes, Fed Loan Servicing. There are a number of different others. And Emily, one advantage that recent graduates now have is that when you graduate, you may have a lot of debt, and you may have a lot of different federal loans from your years in dental school or medical school or physical therapy school. But they all should be serviced by one loan servicer. And so again, find out what you borrowed and who the loan servicer is. If you're just not clear on your federal borrowing, if you go to studentaid.gov, you'll actually get a listing of all your federal loans, including any federal loans you had from college and perhaps a post-bac program. Now, one quick thing about when the loans come due, I think most of you guys know this, most of the federal loans come due six months after you graduate, the CARES Act If you're a recent graduate class of 2020, the CARES Act does not impact the due date. But if you happen to be listening to this podcast and you graduated earlier and your loans have been in repayment, you're probably aware that your monthly payments have been suspended until September 30 at a zero interest rate. So maybe long-winded answer, but what'd you borrow? In all likelihood, Emily, it's all federal loans in the direct loan program. Who are they with? The lenders, the feds, but who are they being serviced by? That's important. You'll find that at studentaid.gov. And then when do they come due? For the most part, it's six months after graduation. That's the basic questions.
0: Okay, great. Um, And I think you mentioned that it is possible that some of us might have private loans from maybe undergrad. How do you find out, what those might be?
1: That's a great question and it's really important that you ask that because in general, although there always seem to be exceptions, I, if I've learned nothing else after having done this for 38 years, it's Emily be careful with absolute statements because <laughs> there always seems to be an exception. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you, guys, if you look at studentaid.gov and you think you've got some loans that aren't on there, because remember only federal loans are listed at studentaid.gov, You think you might have had a private loan, maybe from college or maybe even a post-bac program. Uh, There are a couple of ways you can do that. First of all, you can get a copy of your credit report free, and that will list all the student loan debt you've got. You can also just call the school where you attended. Maybe it's an undergrad school and go, hey, do you mind checking my records? I think I may have had some loans. Uh, that were private Do you mind helping me out there so a credit report will show everything but you can also call the school that's a great question
0: okay great that's helpful and the credit report also shows your federal loans as well right
1: yeah it shows it shows everything that's kind of a good good place to go um, you know everybody frankly should get a copy of their credit report at least once a year because it is free yeah. and, and the thing about the private loans and again this is a little bit more detailed than maybe you asked for they tend to be the loans that if a borrower is going to be aggressive in repayment those tend to be the loans to go after early because although i don't know many people who like the interest rate on their federal student loans the private loan rates can be high but they also have very, very limited repayment flexibility on them Sometimes they've got co-signers and they're, it, they just tend to be the loans to get rid of first because you've got far more flexibility in repayment with income plans, postponement options if needed on your federal loans. So in general, go after the private loans if you've got them.
0: Okay, good to know. Another thing, I think you kind of touched on a little bit, but there's a lot of different terms in front of different loans, subsidized, yeah. unsubsidized, direct.
1: right. Right. What exactly
0: do those terms mean? And- yeah,
1: <laughs> good good question. Once again, try and keep it simple. Uh, subsidized loans, a grad student hasn't seen any of those for about eight or nine years, but if you had loans from college, some of you may have what are called subsidized staffer loans or subsidized direct loans. And all that means is that's actually a good thing. If you have a subsidized loan, That simply means that those loans are interest-free to you during school and during a grace period. Now, what happened back in, I think, guys, it was 2013, the government, in its infinite wisdom, and yes, Emily, I just put an editorial comment in there, (laughs) the the government took away all the subsidies for graduate and professional students. And so starting, I think it was the 2012-13 academic year, all the federal borrowing for grad students, regardless of degree program, became unsubsidized. Now, all that means is that the interest accrues from the time of disbursement, accrues, just a fancy word for you know interest is building up. Borrowers don't have to pay the interest on unsubsidized loans in school, but nobody's paying it for you. So if you're a, you know, a dental student doing a DMD or DDS program, And you're doing a direct unsub and maybe a grad plus every year. Well, you don't have to pay the interest on those loans, but the interest is accruing. And as many of the folks on the podcast may know, that interest at some point is going to be added back to the original amount borrowed. That's called capitalization. And that will happen at repayment. And so for simple definitions, subsidized is a loan you probably had in college if you were fortunate enough to have one it's interest-free during school in the grace period, an unsubsidized loan, Emily, the interest has been accruing since day of disbursement.
0: Okay, that clears it up. Another kind of buzzword I know that we often hear is deferment. Um, And I think most of us understand that in terms of when you're in school, you know, you don't have to start paying your loans, Um, but how does that work with residency?
1: Yeah, that's a that's another super question. It, let's just use an example, see if this will help. You know, Emily, if you took out um, some loans in college, maybe a maybe a subsidized Stafford, maybe and you know you needed more money, and you did an unsubsidized Stafford, uh, and and you got out, and maybe you took a gap year or not, but then you decided to go to dental school or medical school. Okay, those loans go into an in-school deferment, and that tends to happen automatically. I'm cautious about using that word, but when you go to school, at least half time, federal loans are put in an in-school deferment. You're right. People are familiar with that. Mm -hmm. When you get out and the loans come due, once again, for most folks, that's about six months out. If you run into problems and you just, you can't afford to make payments, there are two ways to postpone payments on federal loans. One is with a deferment and one is with a forbearance. Now, here's where an old man like me has to keep things pretty simple here. Deferment in the alphabet comes before forbearance. So deferment is preferable, but listen carefully, guys. A deferment is really only preferable on a subsidized loan because if you get a deferment and you had a subsidized loans, Emily, then it's interest-free to you during that period of deferment. If you don't qualify for a deferment, and you need to postpone with what's called a forbearance, interest accrues on everything. So keep it simple, deferment and forbearance are both ways to postpone payments on federal loans. Deferment is really only better if you have any subsidized loans. Now let's play that out for specifically dental school graduates and medical school graduates. If a medical school graduate in residency or a dental school graduate has decided to do a residency program. And if it is a hospital-based residency program, you know, where you guys are actually employees, and this mm-hmm. would certainly be the case for osteopathy and allopathic medicine during the minimum three-year residency period. This Emily would be a perfect example of a dental school graduate doing a one-year GPR or maybe a two-year pediatric residency in a hospital-based program if these folks needed to postpone payments, it's highly unlikely they'll qualify for a deferment. Those are harder to get. But there is something, and I want everybody to be sure they hear this clearly, there's something for dental and medical residents and interns called a mandatory residency forbearance. And this is a period of time Uh, When you're not required to pay on your loans, and Emily, the nice thing about the mandatory residency forbearance, that mandatory word means the loan servicer cannot deny you the request. Uh, You are uh, put in forbearance for a period of up to 12 months at a time. You can use the mandatory residency forbearance all the way through your residency program if you need it for that long. You can come out of it at any time, and you can use it at any time. Perfect example, let's say someone's doing a three-year pediatric residency program uh, out of medical school, and they enter repayment for a year. We're, I'm sure, going to talk about repayment plans in a minute. Mm -hmm. And then they decide that they just need to postpone payments. They could request a mandatory residency forbearance at that time. So the easy answer is two ways to do it, deferment and forbearance. For medical residents and dental residents, it's likely going to be a forbearance that you cannot be denied, uh, your credit's protected, you're considered to be in good standing. Long story short, what we tell graduates that we work with one-on-one is, you know, that's a card to put in your back pocket and play it if you need it. If you don't need to postpone the payments, goodness sakes, don't do that. Okay. And the income plans, you know, Emily, you probably know this, the income plans provide ways to get really manageable payments. But if you just can't pay or don't want to, you can postpone with a forbearance, great question
0: so with the mandatory um residency forbearance obviously the interest is going to continue to accrue but are there other any other penalties with that in terms no there really not
1: and and one thing uh, to to think about uh, and we may get into this later depending on kind of how we go with this during a period of forbearance when you're not required to pay you can make a voluntary payment if you want to you're just not required to now, okay. I'd like to think that most people who request a forbearance tend to be, you know, folks who just, they say, I can't, I can't even afford an income plan. I just can't afford the payments. And so I really need to postpone payments. But, but let me pick on a particular specialty. I hope this is okay. <laughs> Let's suppose you have a, uh, a, a medical school graduate who's going into emergency medicine, And they're going to do the three-year emergency medicine program, and they're planning to work in a rural area where the salaries are anticipated to be probably higher. At least that's—I don't know that from personal experience, but that's from working with thousands of folks who've done this. Mm -hmm. That emergency medicine resident might go look. I'm not going to go into the public sector, so I'm not interested in public service loan forgiveness, which we'll talk about. I'm going to be fine eventually paying my debt off. I mean, I I know I will be. You know, I'll catch up. I may pay it off in three or four years. I just don't want a payment in training. I just don't want a required payment. Mm -hmm. So that borrower might use mandatory residency forbearance. And since they're not required to pay, if they want to voluntarily pay, because interest is accruing, they could make voluntary payments in whatever amount they want to, whenever they want to, and they could post the voluntary payment on their most expensive loan, because they're not in a required repayment plan. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah, so again, I, I just the way I say it, and we're gonna talk about the income plans in a minute, with the income plans, most folks can find an affordable payment, right. but if somebody just, they can't afford it, maybe they've got family or something, or you know, kids, and they just, their are other financial obligations. For goodness sakes, don't get in trouble, play that card if you need it, it's called mandatory. Residency forbearance, and real quick, because I think this may be a situation you may be in for dental school graduates. Uh, the you know the uh, uh, advanced dental education to me they're kind of two types. There's the hospital-based programs that we mentioned, like GPR, where you're actually an employee, you're you're working at a teaching hospital, you're paid a stipend. But then there are programs that are academic-based, where you're actually uh, enrolled in school, and you may actually be be paying tuition and right. taking out loans that would certainly qualify as an in school deferment period
0: okay No, so that is very helpful i actually didn't know about the residency forbearance so
1: yeah it's great can't be turned yeah. down because it, it, it has nothing to do i meant to say this it has nothing to do with your debt level or your income or anything it's based solely on your status as a resident or intern your house officer program director gme director they sign it and like i said you can't be denied it that's awesome yes yeah, pretty good
0: All right, so we kind of touched on it a little bit, but um, we want to talk about the different repayment options if you are going to start tackling that. So (laughs) um, I know there's kind of two major classes, um, and the first is public service loan forgiveness, which you mentioned. Um, So I guess in a nutshell, what is it and who is it ideal for?
1: Right. Let's talk semantics here and, and, and pardon an old cranky man being, being slightly corrective of something here. Yeah. Public service loan forgiveness isn't actually a repayment plan. I'm going to back into that here in just a moment. Okay. So here's the way it works. When the loans come due and, you know, eventually they're going to come due. They're either going to come due six months out or if you postpone, they're going to come due later. But when they come mm-hmm. due, There are a lot of individual repayment plans with federal loans. I think there's something like, I don't know, 12 or 13 or 14 different plans. But here's where I go back to something I said when we just started this thing. Keep it simple. Every plan, every single one is either based on a time period called time-driven or it's based on income, income income-driven. Now, what we suggest borrowers do, and it doesn't mean this is necessarily the right, right way to do it. But we always tell borrowers, look at what you can afford, run the numbers and start with the most egregious, aggressive plan and back into, Emily, the one you're comfortable with. This is where it's not rocket science. Find a repayment plan where the required minimum payment is comfortable. And yes, that means different things to different people. But find the requir- a plan where you know, the required monthly payment is really doable for you. And then you decide if you want to overpay or not. And you may be able to, you may not. Okay, well, time-driven plans are set up. These are really simple if you can afford them. This is where your servicer at repayment, they just take your total balance, principal and interest, and they just spread it out. It's called amortizing. They spread it out over 10 years or 25 years. The payments are exactly the same. They never change. They have nothing to do with marital status, nothing to do with income. For, and that's one reason borrowers like it. You know, married borrowers don't have to go, oh my gosh, do we file jointly? Do we file separately? It doesn't have a thing to do with that. Mm-hmm. And one thing about the time plans, in addition to the payment never changing, there's a date certain in the future that if you made minimum payments, your debt would be gone. There's nothing to forgive. The time driven plans don't, these are not plans you use for forgiveness because there's nothing to forgive at the end of the term. And you know, we say start with the 10-year plan. Look how, you know, for many borrowers on this call, that's going to be pretty onerous. <laughs> mm-hmm. Then look at the 25-year plan. Okay, nobody in their right mind, I don't think, is going to stay in a 25-year plan making minimum payments. But a medical resident who maybe has a partner a spouse and some additional resources, they might get a repayment um, monthly payment with a 25-year plan they can handle in training. And then as soon as they become an attending physician, they start accelerating payments and they never stay in it for 25 years. Right, but right. those are time plans. And again, guys, just remember, if you use a time plan, uh, it's based on a time period. It doesn't have anything to do with anything else. And time plans don't qualify for uh, forgiveness provisions. Okay, but here's where again it's pretty simple. If you run the numbers and you go, well, that'd be great, but I just can't afford a time plan. And this is very typical of a dental school resident, GPR, pediatric resident, certainly typical of many medical school graduates with the debt levels they have compared to their stipend, which is, you know, in the like mid to high 50s. Mm-hmm. If there's a big gap, Emily, between the federal debt that they owe and their income, that's who the income plans are designed for. I mean, they're they're designed specifically for those borrowers who can't afford a time plan. Okay. So, and kind of common sense says, the bigger the gap between the debt and your income, the more likely you're going to need a plan. Simple example. If you came out of dental school, you know, making uh, and, and your uh, and your debt is sixty thousand dollars. Well, first of all, good for you. I'm not sure how you pulled that <laughs> off, but that's, but that's way below the net, way below the national average. But if you came out owing sixty thousand dollars, and you're doing a one year GPR and you're making fifty seven thousand, you know you're just probably not going to need an income plan.
0: Right.
1: But if you came out of dental school owing three hundred thousand dollars, which is closer to the average debt level for indebted dental school grads and you're doing a 1 year gpr and you're making $57,000. Well, guess what? You know if you want to start making payments on your loans, you're going to need an income plan. And you know, talk to the medical school graduates. They have income driven repayment plans written all over them. Right. So, so again, start simple. It's either a time plan, look at those first. And if that doesn't work, use an income plan. Now, there are a lot of different income plans, but we say this repeatedly, people seem to be familiar with IBR, income-based repayment. That's a much, much older plan. It came out in 2009. By and large, the graduates now who are interested in income plans need to be looking at one of two plans, pays you earn, known as pay, Mm -hmm. and revised pays you earn, known as repay. And only the government could come up with a repayment plan called repay. But those are the newest (laughs) Those are the newest plans, and they tend to be the best plans. And one of the reasons, without getting too far into the weeds, is the calculation of payments with IBR, Emily, you may know this, was done at something called 15% of a borrower's discretionary income. And don't worry about that definition. Pay and repay are done at 10% of discretionary income. Okay, well... 10% of X is less than 15% of X. So if you're going to use an income plan, since there's no penalty for overpayment, and since you're trying to qualify, since some borrowers will try to qualify for public service, which I'm about to get into, obviously the lower the payment, the higher the forgiveness amount. That's why most borrowers graduating now who need an income plan, they're going to use either pays you earn or revised pays you aren't. Does that make sense?
0: Yes, yeah, for sure.
1: Okay, now hugely important, and I, I keep saying all this stuff's important, but I guess I think it is. <laughs> I think everybody's in agreement that if you did a time plan of 10 or 25 years and you made the minimum payments, at the end of the term, you'd be debt-free. There's nothing to forgive. That's just like a mortgage. Right. The income plans don't work that way. Let's use repay, the newest plan, as an example. Repay has a 25-year term on it for grad and professional students. All that means, Emily, is if you decide to use repay, revised pays you earn, to repay your federal loans, you got 25 years to get rid of the debt, not a day longer. Listen carefully, because I can now finally speak with with absolute statements. I can guarantee you one of three things is going to happen. Number one, if you work in the public sector, nonprofit, 501c3.gov.edu.org, if you work for 10 years in the public sector and make 10 years worth of payments with repay, your debt will be forgiven tax-free, meaning you simply don't have to claim the forgiveness amount as taxable income you would be forgiven with the public service loan forgiveness program. Now I'm going to come back to more details on that in a moment, but that's the first thing that could happen. And Emily, here's where common sense kicks in. If the 20, if there's a 25 year term on repay, but you work in the public sector for 10 years and your debt's forgiven in 10 years, the 25 years is irrelevant. You never get there. Okay. But the second thing. What if you just don't work in the public sector or you're a medical school graduate and, you thought you might. And so you started making payments on your loans in training because something like 97% of the teaching hospitals in the country are nonprofit. Mm-hmm. So what if you're a medical school graduate, you're using repay, you're in that 25 year plan, you're making payments with repay, and you're working for a nonprofit teaching hospital, and you do three four, five years worth of training. And you thought you might land in the public sector but you end up landing in the private sector. Okay, well, now PSLF is put on hold because you still have direct loans from the government and you still have repays, your payment plan, but you're missing the right kind of employment for public service. So the second thing that can happen is this borrower just stays in repay and they repay the debt themselves, but Emily, they pay it before the end of the 25 year term. Does that make sense?
0: So if you are doing repay and you're not doing pslf
1: right you got 25 years to get rid of your debt
0: so what it does it go away after 25 years even yeah this
1: is the third thing i was going to mention this is the third thing i was going to mention the first thing that could happen is you're debt free after 10 years of payments of public service the second thing that could happen is you just pay the debt off yourself before the 25 year term is up and here's where again common sense kicks in if you, you know, Emily pick on you, if you had $150,000 in debt mm-hmm. and you were doing a three year residency program, you'd need repay the lower payments in training. But I'd argue as an attending physician, when you came out, you are gonna be making a lot more than $150,000 a year, let's hope. And the gap for you is not real big. You'll get that debt paid off well before the 25 year term is up. Okay. But if your debt's really significantly high, remember what happens in training. Many times the payments that you're making with an income plan like repay aren't high enough to cover the interest on the debt. And so in training, your debt's going up. And that's what leads to door number three. If you're using repay and you don't retire it after 10 years of public service, and you can't retire it yourself within 25 years, when you get to year 25, The government, Emily, will forgive it for you. That's called term forgiveness. I want to be sure everybody understands there's public service loan forgiveness after 10 years of payments, but there's term forgiveness if you get to the end of the term and you just have not been able to catch up and pay the debt. Here's the big difference the term forgiveness amount is considered taxable income the year. It's forgiven.
0: Does
1: that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I would respectfully say, and we can talk about pay versus repay in a moment if you want. I would respectfully say that the challenge for uh, medical and dental school graduates, really for all graduates, but certainly for medical and dental and physical therapy and others, it's not, can you find a repayment plan you can afford? Because if you can't afford a time plan, the income plans are not based on how much you owe. They're based on your income. Right. Emily, you could owe $100,000 in debt. I could owe $300,000 in debt. If we're both first-year residents making $57,000 a year and we're both single, our monthly payment's exactly the same. Right. Okay. But you're going to get your debt paid off a lot faster and I might never get it paid off that
0: makes
1: sense yes yeah definitely so PSLF forgiveness not subject to tax term forgiveness you hit the end of the term you paid on time like you should have but you just get the debt. you couldn't get the debt paid off that's forgiven but that's subject to tax and one more quick thing here is we have no precedent in terms of what Emily that's going to look like and the reason for that is simple math IBR, the older plan I mentioned, it's got a 25-year term on it like repay. Well, the first time anybody's going to hit term forgiveness is year 2034. Okay. Repay that we just talked about, it didn't start until 2015. It's going to be 2040 before anybody hits term forgiveness. So does that help with kind of how how income plans work? They're completely different than time plans, and they change. They're based on the payment calculations based on prior year income, and it changes every single year.
0: Yeah, definitely that clears up a lot. I think one distinction that I want to make sure I have correct, and for everybody listening, um, is with PSLF, PSLF itself is not a um type of repayment plan you would be still making payments as like a pay or repay type structure and then after 10 years as long as you're working for like a 501c3 then you can qualify
1: that's that's exactly right i respectfully say i wish more people understood it because people go well i'm going to choose pslf as my repayment plan right pslf is not a repayment plan a repayment plan is going to be time driven or it's going to be you know pay or repay one of the income plans it's just that and I know this is being recorded and that's okay. I've said this publicly. It's just the government comes in and says, oh, have we got a deal for you? And I assure you, those are my words, not theirs. <laughs> they basically say, look, if you work in the public sector for 10 years, you know, we, we don't care what the debt level is that you still owe. After those 10 years, we will forgive it tax-free. And that just kind of leads us into public service loan forgiveness. People. And I, and I, I know I work closely with this, so to me, I'm, I'm always amazed when people stand up and say this is a complicated program. It's not a complicated program at all, I don't think. It was passed into law in 2007, and, and the government did that to try to encourage borrowers to work in the public nonprofit sector with the understanding that that'd be good for the you know greater good, if you will, society, and you'd probably make less. So if you're going to make less, we'll help you out by forgiving your debt after 10 years, and we won't even tax you on it. And the eligibility requirements are really simple. I think I shared with you, Emily, um, I, I try to be careful about self-promotion here, but we've got a ton of free stuff on our site, including a very simple to follow statement on public service, and it, it qualification's easy. Three things have to happen at the same time for you to qualify. You have to make 10 years worth of payments. That's 120 payments. You can't shorten the time period, by the way. It's gotta mm. be 120 payments. The payments don't even have to be consecutive. Uh, Go back to what we said about postponing payments, Emily. You could pay for a couple of years, take a forbearance for a year. The clock just pauses at two years. And when you come back out and pick back up with your income payments, it starts right back up where you left it. So it's 120 payments with an income plan on direct loans. Well, that's pretty easy because that's all the government's been (laughs) loaning out for the best 10 years while you're working full time for a nonprofit. That's how you qualify for public service. And you can actually now track the payments by enrolling in the program. You don't actually apply for the program until you've made all your payments, but you can enroll and track your payments uh, by filling out what's called an employment certification form. And uh, I'll try to keep this fairly short, but there's been so much discussion and confusion about the high percentage of denials the past two years when borrowers, you know, applied Emily for public service loan Mm -hmm. forgiveness. Look at the year that was passed in the law, 2007. Okay, we'll add 10 years to that, which I think is a little unrealistic because I think it's going to take most borrowers 11 or 12 years to qualify, not because people are late with payments, but stuff happens. They might need to postpone payments. The employment also, Emily, doesn't have to be Um, uh, the 10 years, you know, while you're making your payments, the 10 years of employment doesn't have to be consecutive. For example, I like to kind of pick on psychiatry as easy example for medical school uh, graduates. Four-year program, uh, four-year residency program, what if this person made four years worth of payments with pay or repay, and they weren't sure if they were going to go work VA or private sector? Okay, they got four years in toward public service. They've been tracking their payments. They decide to go work private sector. Okay, good for them. They work. Maybe they make some good money there. Well, the PSLF clock just pauses because they're still making payments with an income plan on direct loans, but they got the wrong kind of job. Okay, well, what if after one year, that psychiatrist went, you know, I love the money, but I hate what I'm doing. I'm gonna go work for the VA. Well, the clock picks right back up. Where the borrower left it off, so eligibility is not difficult, but the borrowers who applied the last two years, 99 percent of the applications were denied. And if you look on our site, and we pulled this straight from the government's website, Emily, over half the people who were denied, they were using a 25-year time plan. I say this as respectfully as I can. They should never have applied. They had the wrong plan. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what they were told, if anything, about eligibility. 15% of them tried to get forgiveness on loans the government didn't even make. So it was not surprising the numbers are high. And this is where I'll kind of end my sermon here. For borrowers who are interested in public service, it's, it's easy how to qualify, track your payments. You would never turn in an application for public service loan forgiveness That'd be denied because you'd never turn the application in until you already knew you'd made enough payments to qualify.
0: Yeah. That makes sense? Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, what you just said about the level of denial and everything kind of just speaks to how little we actually know about right. our. Right. I think that's why it's such a big issue. And um, I'll definitely share the resources that you. Uh, gave to me with everybody in the show notes because I think it's really an important topic that right. we're not super educated about.
1: Yeah, one one more thing to remember too, because this I think scares some bars. This is not um, a program like the National Health Service Corps or Armed Forces or NIH or Indian Health Service, where these are called those are called loan repayment assistance programs. That's where, as you probably know, you sign a commitment with a hospital or the or NIH or National Health Service Corps to you know, in case of National Hofstra Corps, go work in an underprivileged area. National Hofstra scores they're not forgiving anything. They didn't make you the loan. They're just giving you money to pay your debt off. But you have to sign a contract with them. You don't sign a contract with public service. You just pay on your loans. Right. I mean, you just, you just track them. That's why it's kind of sort of tailor-made for people doing residency programs. So good question.
0: Yeah, no, that is super helpful. Um, another thing I want to touch on, I think we talked about it a little bit, but the kind of two main avenues that most people go for now in terms of income driven repayment is the repay yeah. versus pay. Yeah. What is the key distinction between those two?
1: Yeah. Pay versus repay. And again, at the, in trying to be very cautious about self-promotion, we've also got a, a very easy to follow comparison chart on our homepage. That's just, it's a PDF form. You can just pull it off and, and compare it. And it compares IVR, pay and repay. We're probably going to drop IBR at some point, since it's an older plan. Mm -hmm. Okay. Both plans are really good. And I always say this to borrowers, don't obsess about which one to use because they're both really good plans. But there are some borrowers who are better suited uh, for one as opposed to the other. So without going through all all the nuances, I do want to highlight some of the main differences between the plans. First of all, The plans are both, the payment, both calculated the same way, 10% of discretionary income. So, you know, go back to our example of us both being first year residents making $57,000 a year and we're single. If you use pay and I use repay, our monthly payment would be exactly the same because the payments are calculated the same way. The the two big differences to note or two of the biggest differences to note, uh, one involves married borrowers. If someone is married filing a joint tax return, Remember that the income payments are based on a prior year tax return. So if you're married filing jointly, spousal income is gonna show on that tax return. And under pay or repay, Emily, spousal income is gonna be counted. Now, little sidebar, if you married somebody who's got federal student loan debt, that's factored in as well. It's not a huge factor, but they try to give folks who married into federal debt a little bit of a (laughs) break. But here's the big difference. You know, if you married somebody and, you know, they're loaded, you know, good for you, but (laughs) you married and the inclusion of their income is causing your monthly payment to be much higher than you want. And that would probably that could be the case for somebody who's trying to qualify for public service loan forgiveness, because go back to that program for just a moment. If you're trying to qualify for public service loan forgiveness, Kind of common sense says you want the lowest possible payment you can get right. <laughs> to maximize the forgiveness amount. So if you married somebody, and I'm just going to make the number, you know their income's $100,000 a year, well, that's going to cause your payment to go up. Pay as you earn will let you file separately and exclude spousal income. That's a huge difference between pay and repay. Repay always counts spousal income. If you're single, that's irrelevant. If you marry someone who respectfully is making 30 or $40,000 a year, I don't mean to downplay that income amount, but that's not going to have a huge impact on the monthly payment. Right, right. So the big, one of the huge differences between pay and repay is that pays you earn is the only way to exclude spousal income from the calculation you have to file separately to do it. So, you know, kind of sort of Emily, if you're keeping score, you know, score one for pay if you're married. Now, what repay does have that pays you or doesn't, and this is extremely important, and one reason that so many borrowers were with high debt or interested in repay. I've referenced this before, and I hope this doesn't insult anybody's intelligence. But the only time your debt's going to start to come down is if you're covering more than the interest on the debt. Right. Okay. Back to you know, let's use medical again. Okay. If if somebody has two hundred thousand dollars in student loan debt coming out of medical school. The interest alone is probably $1,000, $1,100. Let's just use it that, And that's just to keep the debt level. I mean, you know, if the borrower said to me, I asked them, what's your repayment objective? And they said, I want to come out of training owing the same thing I owe going into training. Okay, good. Can you come up with $1,000 a month? Yeah. So what happens with the income plans is finding a payment you can afford is not an issue. But what if your payment is zero, which is the case for many first year residents? Or what if it's, let's use $300. Okay, what's wrong with this picture? You're making $300 payments, which you can afford, but you owe a 1000 in interest. Your debt's going up $700 every single month. All right. Now, public services is out there going, yes, but okay, if you work in the public sector, don't be too concerned about this. But if you're not going to do public sector work, you got that 25-year term sitting out there going, yeah, and if you don't pay your debt off, I'm going to tax you on it with a forgiveness amount. Yeah. Here's what Repay does It's so great. Repay has what's called a 50% subsidy. What does that mean? It just means that on unsubsidized loans, which guys, look at your portfolio. That's all you got. Direct unsub, direct plus, grad plus loans. The government says, we'll whack that difference in half. We'll subsidize half of it. So in this case, Emily, instead of the borrower they owe 1000 in interest. They're paying $300. Instead of their debt going $700 a month, their debt only grows $350 a month. The way I like to explain it to borrowers when I'm talking to them is the government slows down the hurt by 50%. Clearly okay. a good thing. Yeah. Now, one more thing. I always say, look, it's one thing to know how these plans work, but play this out. If this borrower is using repay, and their debt growth is being slowed down, but they do public service loan forgiveness, then the is kind of irrelevant because the feds are going to pick up the tab after 10 years of payments anyway.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But what if that borrower thought they might do public service, but they land in the private sector and now they're stuck with that debt? Well, that's where repay is going to help them because they'll owe less than they did with pay as you earn, because pay doesn't have that subsidy. Right. And that's why we say that in general, pay tends to be for someone who's married and needs to exclude spousal income and file separately. Repay really helps the high debt borrower, because common sense says the higher the debt, the bigger that gap is gonna be between the interest Emily you owe and what your monthly payment is.
0: So I know, you know, it depends on a case by case basis, Right. what is in general, I'm not going to make you commit to anything, but <laughs> um, what would you say is kind of the tipping point for one versus the other? So like, say you're married, but you still have a lot of debt. Like where do do people fall in that? Because those two things kind of conflict with each other, it seems like Yeah,
1: and, and this is where I, I get to say, and you'll hate this, but it depends. But okay. there's a way to there's a way to figure this out. Because somebody could have a gap between their um you know, somebody could have a gap between their debt and their income, but maybe they matched and they're living at home and they're not having to pay rent. Mm-hmm. And they're in a situation where, yeah, the gap looks horrible, but they actually are better set because they've got the financial resources since they're not having to pay rent, maybe not paying a lot of living expenses, et cetera. Go back to married, uh, to the to pays you earn. You might have someone um, who is married who has a family and family size does impact the payment amount. So there's not a threshold for a borrower to say, well, I make this much or here's my debt, so this means I need to do pay or repay. I will say very respectfully, there is um, on the government's website, studentaid.gov, there's a loan simulator that's real easy to use. It has a few little problems, sorry, but it's very easy to use for borrowers who are trying to to see the difference, Emily, in the monthly payment, under pay and repay, married filing jointly, and married filing separately. It asks family size, it asks income, and it clearly shows very simply what the distinction would be under those two scenarios, and we'd encourage borrowers to use that. Okay, so good. sorry, there's not kind of a, I wish there was, but there's not a, there's just not a, a mandatory, okay, if you make more than right. this, yeah. you should use this plan.
0: I figured that's what you'd say, but I
1: thought. Yeah, I sorry, say. sorry guys. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. I know it's it's very complicated, but I think a lot of people try to figure it out yeah. themselves. Yeah, um, I
1: know. It's tough.
0: And it's not black and white. So, right. I mean, that kind of being said, I think it's clear that, you know, a lot of us doctors maybe don't know so much about this. Right, right. Um, and that's why we would maybe need people like you. Right. So, If um, anyone is listening to the podcast now and is interested in getting in contact with you or um, hearing more about what you do, how can they find you?
1: Uh, just, I would encourage folks, uh, and I, was, I appreciate you asking, I'd encourage folks just to go to our website. I mean, you always hear people say that, but the main reason for that is if you go to our website, we put as much free stuff out there as we can. We've got the statement on the, on the CARES Act because of the, the COVID-19 provision of mm-hmm. the pandemic uh, and what's going on with student loans there. We've got an updated statement on public service that talks about the proposals to eliminate the program, which haven't gone anywhere uh, and probably won't impact, uh, highly unlikely that impact current borrowers. Uh, We've got a statement on refinancing on federal consolidation, you know, probably should make a quick comment about those two things. So we got a ton of free stuff there. Uh, There is an option to, to do consultations with us if you want them. But I respectfully say that, you know, you don't need to pay for a consultation. If you can figure some of this stuff out yourself, at least go look at the free stuff out there. I think it will help you first off.
0: Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, and since you did briefly mention it, I know now yeah. is probably not the best time to be necessarily trying to consolidate uh, yeah. Yeah, federal just, loans. Yeah, let's but, just
1: talk about that. Yeah, A yeah, couple of things. Uh, let's talk about federal consolidation and refinancing, because in theory, they're kind of similar, but there are some major differences. All federal consolidation is, guys, it's just trading debt for debt you probably know this. When you consolidate with the feds, you just pay off all the loans you've gotten. You replace it with one new loan for the exact same amount. I mean, Emily, if you had four direct unsub in dental school and four grad plus, you got eight loans. Okay, well, if you consolidate, those are gone. They're paid to zero. You got one new loan, a direct consolidation loan for the exact same amount. For many years, and it has been many years, recent graduates just aren't candidates to do it. It's not that you can't, but think about why you would what you would gain. You wouldn't gain really anything at all. You've already got, as I said, when we first started this podcast, you've got your loans with one servicer and the servicer offers combined billing. So it doesn't matter whether you're using a time plan, pay or repay, doesn't matter what plan you're in. You're going to make one payment and the loan servicer is going to apply that one payment proportionally against all your loans based on the debt level, based on the amount of the loan and your interest rate, but you're making one payment. So you've got convenience and the rates are all fixed. So Emily, you don't really gain anything by doing federal consolidation. So most graduates, it's not that you can't consolidate, you just don't need to. And one more quick thing about consolidation. You can always, Emily, overpay on any federal loan with no penalty, but if you don't consolidate and keep all your loans separate, and you decide at some point to aggressively pay, you can pick the loan. You want the extra payment to go on, which would be your most expensive grad plus loan. That's a superb way to pay off your debt if you decide to be aggressive. Loan servicers usually have drop-down menus to let you do that. Mm. So most borrowers, Emily, just don't need to do federal consolidation. They just don't gain anything. All right, what's the difference between that and refinancing? You hear about people refinancing mortgages. For the most part, the only reason someone would refinance would be to get a lower rate. Right. Same is the case with federal, with, with student loans. Refinancing is where you take your debt, federal and or private, if you've got some private loans from college or post-bac program, and you pay them all off, but you do that with a private lender. And we don't reference a lot of names. Well, I tell you what, I'm going to reference a bunch of names. We don't promote any individual ones, but these are names everybody should probably know. You've probably got mailers, you know, Citizens, Laurel Hill, Common Bond, Credible, Uh, Mm -hmm. SoFi, the list goes on and on and on. These are reputable private lenders who want you to trade your federal and or private debt for a new private loan. The only reason you would do this is to drop the rate. That's That's the reason to refinance because when you refinance, you give up the option for an income plan, which you certainly might need in training. And if you give up the option for an income plan, Emily you're giving up the option for public service loan forgiveness. You're also giving up mandatory residency forbearance. You're giving up a lot of the flexibility that you have with federal loans that you just usually don't have with private loans. And I assure you we're not anti-refinancing at all. We've got in fact we've got a number of borrowers we work with that, that we recommend they do it. It's just you have to be careful and know what you're giving up before you take that plunge because you can't undo that. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, so a lot of it, um, like you mentioned, you're giving up kind of all those federal programs in terms of um, SLF and pay versus repay, but would it then be usually more structured like a time-based plan in terms of the repayment?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right, and that's a really good point. Thank you for bringing that up. The private lenders don't have income plans. It's gonna be time-driven. And what tends to happen, and I, I'm always cautious, I, I never want to speak on behalf of loan servicers, I'm, I'm on private lenders, but you can see this on the website. Um, the terms tend to be 5, 7, 10, 12, 15, and 20 years. And like a mortgage, the shorter the repayment term, the better the rate. But remember, the shorter the repayment term, the nastier that monthly payment. Right, be. right. Which, so it's kind of sort of, you know, pick your poison, if you will. If this will help, a couple of examples of who might use refinancing. Now, a dental school graduate, your perfect example, you can qualify for public service loan forgiveness as well as anybody else. You may have got direct loans, you use an income plan, you work in a public sector, so could a a DPT, a doctor of physical therapy. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, dentist and physical therapy graduates, pharmacy, for example, um, podiatry is another example, the career path tends to be in the private sector, veterinary medicine is another perfect example. All of you guys could qualify for public service, but your career track tends to be private sector. Okay, well, if it's going to be private sector and you're out there making decent income and you look at your portfolio and you go, why in the world? You know, I'm a physician, for goodness sake. I'm a dentist. I'm a physical therapist. Why am I, pay- why am I sitting here with $200,000, $300,000 in debt at a 6.5% or whatever the average rate mm-hmm. is? Why why don't I refinance this? So that's a group. You guys kind of tend to be a group that might consider it. And in terms of um, allopathic and osteopathic medicine, I've kind of referenced this. What many of those folks do, I think wisely so, is they start paying in residency with an income plan. It's the only thing they can afford. They have no idea if they're going to be in you know land in the private sector or public sector. Okay, so they make their payments in training. They come out of training. They thought they might qualify for public service. They got three or four or five years in, but they land in the private sector. Well, now as an attending physician, you got a couple of good choices. Keep your debt federal for all the reasons I kind of went into or go, no, this is, this is stupid. Mm-hmm. My debt grew. Look how, much the, look how high the interest rate is. I'm not doing public sector work. I'm making a great salary. Why am I sitting here with all this debt at six and a half percent or whatever the rate is? Let me refinance. So it it, it certainly is not a scam and it's nothing people should be afraid of. It's just a matter of knowing when to do it because once you do it, you can't undo it.
0: Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah. I hope that helps. For sure. I I... I hope that had been too confusing to folks. No,
0: no. You were very clear. Thank you. And I know it's a very nuanced thing, at least for us, it can be overwhelming and you, uh, yeah. very digestible. So I appreciate that. And I know our listeners will too. Well, thank you so much, Paul. I think you've really helped out a lot of people. So I really Good. appreciate you coming on today.
1: Good. Well, appreciate it. And guys, uh, stay safe and appreciate it. It's nice to be part of this. And, uh, Emily, thanks again.
0: So I know today's episode had a lot of information in it, but I think this stuff is super important and the decisions that we make now early on in our career can end up saving us thousands of dollars in the future. So I really hope that you guys were able to learn something that can help you with your plan in paying off your loans um, and just make you more aware of the different programs that are out there so that you can do the best for yourself and your finances in the future. Appreciate you guys tuning into the podcast and hope you're enjoying it. As always, please share this podcast with your friends and leave us a review so that we can connect with as many young doctors as possible. All right. Thanks, guys. Catch you in the next one.